0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the Williams College historian Susan Dunn about her new book, A Blueprint for War, FDR and the 100 Days that Mobilized America. The Hundred Days, Susan, reach across the last months of 1940 and the first months of 1941. They encompass what you call Roosevelt's masterpiece, possibly his finest hour. Maybe you could begin by establishing the context. Set the stage in November 1940. FDR is elected to an unprecedented third term while the Nazi Air Force is bombing London. How goes the war in Europe, and how is it being seen in the United States?
1: Well, let me say first that the premise of my book is that these winter months in 1940 and 41 were, in fact, as you said, the most consequential and vital period of FDR's presidency, and I refer to them as FDR's third hundred days. Historians have always called his first hundred days those uh, First months in uh, 1933 when he began his presidency, and he had to deal with the financial crisis and the Great Depression. And his, he had programs like the CCC, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, TVA, and Emergency Relief Administration. And that was really dealing with uh, very dire economic problems. And then historians refer to his second hundred days as in the summer of 1935. When uh, he proposed and when Congress passed a variety of important social problems, social security, um, National Labor Relations Board, Works Progress Administration, rural electrification, and these were to meet—here to, he was swinging more to the left and dealing with questions of American security and still with prosperity— So that was a financial crisis and uh, social programs. But in 1940, it's a far greater crisis. By the spring of 1940, all of the free democratic governments around the world were in danger. And life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, enlightenment values, all moral values, Judeo-Christian morality, they were all threatened with extinction by the Nazi gangsters.
0: Uh, the Nazis had occupied Western Europe by May 1940, yes.
1: In April, they, uh, they crushed Finland, I'm sorry, not Finland, uh, Norway, and then Denmark, and then came Luxembourg, Belgium, and in June 1940, France surrendered to the Nazis. And now you have Great Britain standing virtually alone. And the question is, what will the United States do now? FDR is very ambivalent about taking the country into war. He said that over and over and over again um, in his uh, Chautauqua speech in 1937. He said, I hate war, and I've seen war firsthand. And that's true that he was in the battlefields when he was assistant secretary of the Navy in World War One, And then at the end of the election season, right before he wins his November election against Wendell Willkie, In a rally in Boston, he promised mothers, I've said it again and again and again, your boys will not be sent into foreign wars. So he's extremely um, ambivalent, to say the least, about going into war. And the people around him, such as Robert Sherwood, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright who was his speechwriter, uh, said that FDR was waiting to be pushed into war. And someone else said that he wanted to be compelled to enter war, that it, was, it wasn't a decision that had to be forced upon him. So he's really hesitating and waffling about what to do.
0: What is the attitude in the country, uh, in America? I mean, there, there's a lot of opinion uh, against our intervention. I mean, mention Anne Morrow Lindbergh and, and uh, America First in the fall of 1940.
1: Yes. Well, Charles Lindbergh uh, is the man I love to hate. He was the principal spokesman for the America First movement. Uh, And unfortunately, Donald Trump has adopted that slogan, America First, which is truly toxic uh, in all its ramifications and history. America First and the isolationist movement was actually rather complex and composed many, many different groups of people who did not want to uh, be involved in the war at all. And some of the people, in fact, were well-meaning. Some were simply scarred by the wounds and memories of World War I and the senseless mass slaughter that took place and gas warfare. And other people were defeatists, and they believed that Germany would undoubtedly win and that there was no point either in our entering the war or in helping Great Britain in any way. And then there was the pilot, Charles Lindbergh, who said that America is safe because we are protected by two vast oceans. And that's rather interesting because he was the heroic aviator who flew across the Atlantic in 1927 in his one-engine single-seat plane, which kind of made the point that the oceans were... um, were passable. They were highways as well, uh, were also highways. Many people in Congress made the point that our fate simply doesn't depend on any foreign nation at all. Others were saying that democracy is fragile and that we couldn't survive a terrible war uh, with our democratic values at stake.
0: Anne Morrow, the, the pilot's wife, was saying that fascism was the wave of the future. And yes, that democracy she, was decayed and, and old-fashioned
1: and weary. Yeah. She wrote a best-selling book. She actually was an exquisite writer, um, and she wrote a best-selling book, very short, and, and it came out just during the election season in the fall of 1940. The title is The Wave of the Future, and she makes the point that the hostilities going on in Europe aren't between good and evil, it's simply between the past and the future. And any, any misdeeds of the Nazis she called simply scum on the wave of the future. And demo- she put the word democracy in quotation marks because it was so quaint and old-fashioned. And she really felt that democracy had had its day, that it was an 18th century enlightenment invention. And she and her husband had lived um, in Europe in the late 1930s and made several trips to Germany, where they really became intoxicated with what they felt was the dynamism and energy of the, uh, of Hitler's dictatorship. And they were dazzled by the 1936 Olympics, et cetera. And in fact, they were planning on moving to Germany. Um, but after Kristallnacht, they decided to return to the United States so they they really impressed by um by fat, what they considered the the future of fascism
0: all right and- let's get back to the election of It's now November eighth. Roosevelt is president. He can now act and speak less ambiguously and uh, what happens in in the month of November? You call it in your book a lousy November.
1: November sure was lousy, yes. Well, I give a little story that I like about um, Thanksgiving, uh, that FDR had wanted to change the date of Thanksgiving and move it up a month to extend the lucrative shopping season between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And some uh, states went along with it, and one state by state, Massachusetts, kept to the fourth th- Thursday in in November. They refused to change the date because they said it was sacred. And I described the uh, Thanksgiving ceremony that they held in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and with people acting the parts of Miles Standish and an Indian chief. And then when they left the celebration, they heard newsboys shouting, Plymouth bombed. And it was Plymouth, England that was bombed just that day. And, um, And this brings together the connection, first of all, the lousy month that it was, and second, the, a very deep connection between Great Britain and the United States. And I must say my favorite quote of all is from Alexander Hamilton. In 1789, he said to a friend, we think in English. And by that, he wasn't talking just about a language and even not even about a means of communication, but about a cultural, intellectual, moral heritage and and that we are bound to Great Britain, and and that is the mother country. And in in 1776, we were bratty kids and we fought against the the mother country and wanted our independence. And now in 1940, we are willing to issue a new declaration, a Declaration of Interdependence,
0: Is Roosevelt beginning to think along those lines now in November, December 1940?
1: Little by little, he is. He's he's still ambivalent. After the election victory in the fall of 1940, his advisors realized that the situation is desperate. And FDR, in fact, is rather tired and weary after all the rallies and speeches. He doesn't seem to be acting and he doesn't seem to be completely prepared to deal with the urgency of the crisis in Europe and around the world. Four of his advisors say, we have to start to plan because war is possible, if not likely. And first thing they need to plan is for a strategy if the United States does have to enter war. And they come up with a strategy uh, after looking at several different possibilities. And FDR does go along with that. And then after that, he's still not moving until December when he goes on a cruise on the Tuscaloosa um, ship in the Caribbean. And after a few days of reading and joking around with his friends, a Navy plane arrives with a letter from Prime Minister Winston Churchill. And it's a very, very long letter, and Churchill later said that it was the most important letter that he ever wrote. And it was asking the President of the United States for what he called decisive and supreme help. What he really was doing was begging the United States for help, not for soldiers, but for the weapons of war. That the United States policy up to then had been called cash and carry. We would sell um, weapons and munitions to victims of aggression obviously not to the perpetrators, but to the victims of aggression. But they had to pay cash and they had to transport whatever weapons they were on their own ships, wherever they wanted to take them. And we would not be responsible, but we would sell. And that really was not an act of the greatest generosity. But when Churchill writes to Roosevelt on December 9th, 1940, he's saying that they no longer have the cash.
0: He's also saying that that Britain is in really desperate shape. That, that, oh,
1: absolutely.
0: That, that the odds are they, they, they could fall.
1: They could fall. Uh, there's been the Blitz since late August, early September. London, Coventry, Midland industrial uh, cities, uh, ports, they're being bombed every single night until East London and many other parts of England are reduced to flaming skeletons and rubble, and thousands of people ha- are are killed.
0: And that's the background against which Roosevelt is reading the letter on the Tuscaloosa. And he comes back uh, in December to Washington, and he's hit upon the idea of lend-lease. So we can give weapons, but not for cash.
1: No, we will give absolutely everything that Britain needs, absolutely free of charge. And we'll say that it's actually an act of great generosity that we will lend them all of these weapons, but it's left conveniently vague how in the world they could possibly return these weapons after a catastrophic war. But it's all the more important that we supply Britain with these these weapons, because Hitler, little by little, is trying to crush not only um, Britain's industry, but also their morale. And the Nazis have a plan for invasion of Great Britain that they call Sea Lion. And uh, so FDR does come up with a plan to save Great Britain, and he calls it Lend Lease. And uh, he returns from his cruise on the Tuscaloosa on December 16th, and it's on the 17th that he holds a press conference. And it's one of his most important press conferences in which he says, uh, well, he he begins his press conference is always the same way and tells the reporters that, well, actually, there's nothing new. He doesn't really have anything to say. Oh, but maybe there's one small item that he could mention, and that Britain is in dire straits, and we've decided to supply them with munitions. And one reporter says, well, what about payment? Will they pay us for all of these ships, tanks, planes, weapons? And FDR says, well, what I'm trying to do is get rid of the foolish old silly dollar sign. Uh, And then he says, let me put it this way. Suppose my neighbor's house is on fire and I have a fire hose. And he and I I could connect the fire hose to a hydrant. Am I going to say to him first, well, buddy, I'll give you the hose, but you have to pay me $15 for it first. Or am I just going to give him the hose and let him put out the fire, and then he'll return the hose to me? And so that's what the program is all about, supposedly. Our generosity, our helping the mother country at our expense, out of um, magnanimity and generosity and responsibility. But, in fact, there's another reality to it. The program is also a quid pro quo. It's also greatly in American self-interest that we will supply Britain with all these weapons, because in a way we're not lending, we're buying. And what are we buying from the British? We're buying uh, security for a while. We're buying time so that we can gear up our industry for defense, mobilize all of American industrial might. And we are buying British soldiers as if they were a mercenary army doing the fighting for us. And we are buying blood because those British soldiers will, not all of them, but many will die. And so it really is quite a practical quid pro quo, not just the moral uh, neighborly framework that FDR presented it with.
0: And then he carries this message on December twenty ninth, in a fireside chat, where he expands on this idea, but also explains that America itself is is under threat.
1: Absolutely, the fireside chat on December twenty ninth is referred to as his "Arsenal of Democracy" talk, in which he um, mentions how dire the situation is and that America is also threatened uh, by this worldwide catastrophe. And that uh, we will we will produce arms for the democracies, and um, and that's just a wonderful phrase that uh, he and some other people it's not clear who first came up with the description arsenal of democracy, but it's a wonderful phrase that ex- that explains America's role.
0: Yeah, it is a wonderful phrase, and he gives that fireside chap chat, chat in the White House, and there are some invited guests among them. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard.
1: Yes, I mentioned that to my students and they've never heard of Carol Lombard or Clark Gable. And for that matter, my students have never heard of Cary Grant or Cole Porter, who lived here in Williamstown, Massachusetts.
0: <laughs> well, for the record, Carol Lombard and, and Clark Gable were the, the two greatest movie star married movie stars at the time in Hollywood. Yes. All right, and, and the... Uh, It's a very successful fireside chat, and it carries American opinion. American opinion is now beginning to turn more and more in favor of intervening. Absolutely.
1: The the polls are showing that American opinion is changing. Now they are saying that it's worth um, helping Great Britain, even if America is, um, is, is forced to enter the war.
0: And then... Go from there to two weeks later to the State of the Union address on January 6th, which is another wonderful speech, which is the one where he introduces the idea of the four freedoms. What are we fighting for?
1: Exactly. First, he he talks about the isolationists, possibly a fifth column in the United States, how serious the situation is. But then he pushes his vision further Uh, to to take a glimpse of what the post-war world might be like and why we would be fighting for something better and stronger. And so he outlines what he considers four essential universal human freedoms, freedom of speech and expression. And he repeats each time he mentions this everywhere in the world freedom of conscience and religion everywhere in the world, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And uh, want and fear are, are joined, interestingly, that in many, many of FDR's speeches during the war and during the buildup to the war, he does mention the problems of economic dislocation and some of the problems that the Treaty of Versailles uh, caused, for instance, punitive reparations on Germany, that these punitive reparations, compounded by the Great Depression, uh, created tremendous economic difficulties for so many people. And at that point, many of them turned to dictatorship. And so to avoid the collapse of democracy and this turn to dictatorship, freedom from want is important. A certain degree of prosperity, living wage, etc., are important. And then freedom from fear, that's a little bit uh, his vision of uh, a new League of Nations, the United Nations, where countries can um, mediate their disputes and not go to war. But I I think many of our listeners might remember or see in their mind's eye Norman Rockwell's famous paintings, iconic paintings of the four freedoms. And they're essentially um, American scenes of a New England town meeting, freedom of expression and speech, uh, freedom from uh, fear were two parents p- tucking their children into bed at night, etc. And uh, that's, in a way, of, they're beautiful paintings that are displayed right near where I live at the Norman Rockwell Museum, but they are not what FDR had in mind. These, this is much, much more of a vision of international security. And it's a it's a worldwide vision. It's about internationalism and and American responsibility and generosity, uh, willing to share everything that we have with other nations. It's the opposite of isolationism. It's the opposite of America first. It's assuming our um, political, military, and especially moral responsibility for the rest of the world.
0: No, well, it, it's a uh, glorious vision and. Later, that's January, and then the Lend-Lease Bill goes to the uh, Congress, where it meets with opposition from the America First isolationists. But it is also celebrated by Henry Luce in the famous February 1941 article, America's Century for Life magazine. So mention that.
1: Yes, Henry Luce in February 41 wrote an astonishing essay, and I think it's even available online, and it's called The American Century. And he actually influenced FDR also on several things, including selective service. And he says that the United States must make a generous and moral commitment to the rest of the globe. We have to help assure the security and well-being of the rest of the planet. He calls it the American century, but not because America will dominate militarily or economically, but it is an American century because we will share with the rest of the world our Bill of Rights, uh, the principles of our Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We'll share industrial products with them, our technical skills. It's a new internationalism, a whole new mindset, mentality of global responsibility. And I can't refrain from saying that Donald Trump again has adopted the uh, the opposite uh, view of Henry Luce, who was in fact a Republican.
0: Who were the people taking the Trump-like America First re- view in Congress and in February and March of 1941, there's opposition. I mean, who testifies against intervention? There's there's Lindbergh, but there's also Joseph Kennedy.
1: Yes, Joe Kennedy, who was an isolationist, who had good relations with Neville Chamberlain.
0: He was the American ambassador in England.
1: Yes, he was the American ambassador to Great Britain.
0: And father and, of JFK, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And then also Norman Thomas, Charles Beard. I mean... Hamilton Fish. I mean, there's quite a lot of opposition in Congress.
1: There's a tremendous amount of opposition. The, the leader, in fact, of the opposition. It's hard to believe, but it was a Democrat, and it was Burton Wheeler of Montana, and he um, was was fiercely isolationist and thought the rest of the world could uh, go to hell. He didn't care at all, and none of these none of these isolationists did. Uh, the one who was Perhaps well-meaning was um, the future president of Yale.
0: Oh, Kingman Brewster.
1: Kingman Brewster. He 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 testified to represent youth. He was a, a still a student, an undergraduate at Yale, and he testified uh, to uh, corroborate everything that Lindbergh had said. But then he actually fought in the war. Well, right, let me add also that Anne Morrow Lindbergh's um, toxic book, the. the um, the wave of the future. Years later, she apologized for having written it, and she said simply, "I didn't know enough." But her husband, Charles Lindbergh, never apologized, and even after the war, he thought that the the crimes of the Allies were just as bad as the crimes of the Nazis.
0: But the lend-lease bill passes in March, and yes. this and this is the this sets the policy and the template firmly in place. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. And now there's no more masquerade of American neutrality. It's clear that we're not a neutral country, that we are going to participate. In a way, Lend-Lease is a covert declaration of war. We're still not actively involved in the war in terms of soldiers, but in every other way we are involved in the war.
0: So we begin to step up our Production and supplying of weapons and planes, and ammunition and ships to the to the British.
1: Absolutely, and that's an, another um, part of what is happening in these third hundred days. Uh, the tremendous mobilization of America, all of American um, uh, industry and the whole uh, peacetime economy has to be put on a wartime basis. And in, and it's clear that um, many of the New Deal programs were excellent programs, but they didn't solve the question of employment and prosperity, but the war mobilization does, and millions and millions of people are streaming into uh, factories and working on assembly lines. And uh, factories that used to produce things like lawnmowers and vacuum cleaners and adding machines, they're now all making scrapnel and gas macks and automatic pistols and high precision instruments. Um, And factories are even searching for workers. And all of these new workers who are streaming into factories need housing near the factories. And so two and a half million new homes are built. And in those new communities, there has to be schools also. So this is a tremendous transformation of the whole of the whole country. And
0: this is well underway before, in December nineteen forty-one, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor.
1: It's a whole year before, absolutely.
0: That Plan D that you spoke about earlier—the the strategy that was developed by. Uh, Roosevelt and by his leading military advisors, among them George Marshall. Uh, and the commitment to the British is that if if there trouble arises in the Pacific, America will have its first priority, the defense of, of Europe and the war in Europe.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it was FDR had this phenomenal quartet of key advisors. As you said, there's General George Marshall, Army Chief of Staff. There's Secretary of War Henry Stimson, uh, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox, and um, Harold Stark, the Chief of Naval Operations. And together in mid-November, again, when they see the President not really reacting strongly enough to the crisis, they tell him that they have to have some sort of plan to know what America's priorities are, what our goals are, and what kind of strategy we would have if uh, if war comes to this country.
0: And we're committed to that as we passed the Lend-Lease in March 1941.
1: We've already decided on the plan of action and the, and Admiral Stark who devised it, he offered four different scenarios and Roosevelt and he and the other advisors could choose from them. And the first strategy they devise is simply for us to be defensive in the Western Hemisphere and stay out of war, but maybe give material help to our allies. And then uh, they another plan B was to have a defensive posture in the Atlantic, but go on the offensive in the Pacific against uh, Japan and simply rely on Britain to hold its own in the Atlantic. And then the third plan is the nightmare plan That is a two-ocean war, and um, that America would have an offensive uh, war in the Atlantic and the Pacific, but the Admiral Stark warns that there wouldn't be successful operations in that case in either theater. And the fourth uh, option was um, Atlantic first, rescue Great Britain, defeat Germany. And that was the, the fourth, and that's Plan D. And in naval parlance, D is dog, and that was the strategy that the quartet and Roosevelt adopted, and it became the strategy for the entire war. And uh, many historians feel that this is, in fact, the most important document of the entire war, to decide on that Atlantic first, rescue Great Britain, defeat Germany as their strategy. And even though... In uh, 1942 and most of 43, more American forces were deployed in the Pacific than in the Atlantic. Plan Dog still remained the operative strategy. That our main goal was to defeat Germany.
0: Go now to the summer of 1941 to Placentia Bay, and is this where Roosevelt for the first time meets Churchill? Am I right about that I think so yes he's had correspondence with Churchill but but they meet on a ship in wh- where is it Newfoundland
1: in, New- in Newfoundland yes a bay in Newfoundland
0: and that cements plan D some c- i mean that's the you know the, the consolidation the handshake right that 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 is our declaration of war on behalf of Britain.
1: Churchill wanted a declaration of war, but the FDR is still not willing to give a declaration of 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 war. But uh, they, the two men agree on something they call the Atlantic Charter. And again, it's a um, vision of the post-war world that they will fight for. And it is a vision that contains the four freedoms, and it also mentions self-determination for nations. And FDR um, meant had in mind not just nations under the Nazi yoke, but uh, colonized nations, colonialized nations, and um, Churchill was still protecting his empire. Um, but there were I- idealistic, nevertheless, dreams in in that Atlantic Charter, and it and, and it became an an important document.
0: This is a wonderful story and a very uplifting story, and you tell it very well in your book. Uh, the, uh, I think. America is armed and dangerous well before the Japanese make the mistake of bombing Pearl Harbor,
1: right? Pre- we are prepared for war, yeah. o- al- almost, yes. We, there's still more mobilization to come, but yes. Um, and, and and as I said, uh, that Lend-Lease was a kind of quid pro quo, that we were buying time um, to prepare and to mobilize industrial defense.
0: Isn't there a wonderful quote from Churchill, something about the Lend-Lease Bill as the most unsqualid act of legislation in the history of mankind?
1: The most unsorted.
0: The most unsorted.
1: The most unsorted act ever. It, yes. our whole, we, we are putting our whole economy and our whole industrial might at their disposal. And I, it takes us back to 1776.
0: Well, Good for us and good for you, Susan Dunn, in writing this book. Thank thank you very much. I've been speaking with Susan Dunn, historian, author, about her new book, A Blueprint for War, FDR, and the Hundred Days That Mobilized America. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today. For only $49, visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.